0: And as they're headed out, uh, Ms. Crenshaw back there, Miss April, if you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, that's where we'll spend some time today. Um, and I'd like to pray together before we just get started that uh, that song we sang would be really true, be the cry of our heart, not just words that we sing. Our lives would be... Aimed and oriented around the goal of lifting Jesus up. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for your incredible love for us. Your mercy is new every morning. That you lead us to repentance through kindness. That you are for us. Jesus, that you are advocate before the Father even now. That you are for us. You've promised that you would work um, all things together for our good. For those that love you. Live according to your purposes. And yet, Father, we, uh, we lose track sometimes. Uh, culture has this strange pull on us. We get beat down, broken, weary. So, Father, would you, through your word, speak to us? Would it be, as Hebrews says, living and active? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, Amen. Uh, Thanks for being here today. Uh, This is a unique day for us as this kind of starts our uh, fall season, kind of the season. Everybody's back in school and um, we have a vision night tonight and I would echo any announcements that's been made about that. If you really want to know kind of what our church is about and what we're seeking to do over this next uh, year, this school year, um, I would encourage you to come tonight and, uh, and just hear a little bit of that. We'll eat together, and then you'll hear from myself and from Jason um, just about what this looked. We've had some significant change in our church um, with uh, the planting the, the Shreveport Church, and so we've kind of adjusted and shuffled some things, and so that's really what that's about tonight. Uh, in light of that, in our last uh, four-week part of our Oikos series, um, I wanted to maybe you would call this a, a Vision Sunday of, of, of sorts that I just want to kind of talk about who scripture or what scripture has called us to be as a people. When you think about church, people think about a lot of different notions. They think about a place that they attend when really in the New Testament, the church is the people of God. And there's a lot to say in scripture about that. What we've tried to do is sum it up um, with our little mantra that we are a spirit-led family on mission-making disciples. That's who we seek to be, claim to be. That's the, uh, uh, that's the lens at which we view things from. That's our scorecard as well. When we sit together as a staff, um, we don't talk. We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the service, although we, you know, we, we do mention some of those things. But we really ask ourselves the question, are we really making disciples of Jesus? And what do we need to adjust in our environments or our rhythms as a church and as people and our community groups? What do we need to do so that we can really be a spirit-led family on mission making disciples and some of these things some of these identities in that phrase of being family of being missionary of making disciples some of these things I think we're doing well Um, some of these we're working towards and again I'm not pulling these out of a hat Um, These were the themes that were in Acts and Romans. Uh, Jesus talked about them. They're in the Old Testament. Nearly every letter that Paul wrote, he kind of hones in on these three identities. So I want to talk about those and then a few statements underneath those. This first identity is that of a disciple. When you think of the term disciple, what comes to your mind immediately I know it's in my mind races Matthew twenty-eight, this great commission, as you do life, go and make disciples. There's only really one command in that. It's not the baptizing or the teaching. In the Greek, the only real command is this making disciples. Go and make disciples. As you go, make disciples. As you teach, make disciples. As you baptize, make disciples. Over and over, it's pictured again and again. And I can say this the church in the West does a good job at making disciples. I could say America at large, our culture does a good job at making disciples, but with one problem is we aren't making disciples of Jesus. We're making disciples of something else. Everyone's trying to train someone up to hold value and esteem highly what they find is most beautiful, and very few of us, even in the church, find Jesus as this, uh, the supremacy of Jesus as this beautiful thing in which we are hoping to mature ourselves into, conform into that image of And this is what Scripture speaks to. It's this call for us to uh, return to this. And as a church, as disciples of Jesus, we want to be focused on growing as disciples of Jesus and making disciples. Growing as disciples and making disciples. Look at Romans 12 with me as we kind of just jump in this thing. This is a passage you've probably heard a lot, and we don't have time to really do uh, this passage real justice. Um, We're going to kind of skip around a little bit and kind of get these identities out of here. But he starts in in Romans 12. He says, "I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, right? You've heard this, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, this is familiar to you, but this is this great call to the church. Now understand when Paul is writing this letter, he is writing it to a church that is under severe persecution. He is writing it to a church that uh, as they turn to Jesus, that their whole lives would be uprooted, That there are Caesars of the day that are dipping Christians in tar and sticking them on a pole and lighting them a fire so that they can light up the walkway, right, to the Roman palace. So to be a Christian was not uh, a cultural um, uh, benefit to anyone at that point. It would cost them maybe even their very own life. And to that, Paul is saying, listen, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, He's calling us to be a disciple. That's what Jesus said many, many times as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. If he said, if you desire to be my disciple or no one is fit to be my disciple who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. That's what it says in in, in Luke. In order like this is all in discipleship is all in. It's not an add-on out in the periphery like, you know, I'm doing this and this and this and I'm juggling all these plates and, yes, I'm going to throw discipleship of Jesus onto one of those. No, this discipleship idea is this new identity that takes over. It speaks a lot in Romans 12 and throughout the other passages about this idea of transformation. That's really the heart of discipleship is being transformed, even as Weston alluded earlier, from who I am to who I'm becoming, this picture of Jesus. Gospel transformation, again, is also not just a one-time event. It's a lifestyle, the heartbeat of the follower of Jesus Christ. It's the daily, hour by hour, battle we fight to remember and believe the gospel, not just only at conversion, certainly there, but every day, moment by moment. Look, is a quote by Dallas Willard. Um, if you're new here, uh, Dallas Willard makes an appearance almost every week. Uh, he has really influenced me, especially in Ideas of discipleship in Ecclesiology is what he says, a disciple is a person who has decided the most important thing in their life is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. A disciple is not a person who has things under control or knows a lot of things. Disciples simply are people, I love this phrase, who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. So we have this idea of this transformation at the beginning when we pass from death unto life, when we committed our life to Christ. And you may remember in your story when that happened or the season of which that happened when when the light came on and you began to, uh, the gift of faith was imparted to you and you began to believe that Jesus was not only your only hope for salvation, but the most uh, supreme thing that we could live our life for. But this idea of transformation and discipleship just keeps to this Constantly, as Dallas Willard says, revising our affairs to carry through on your decision to follow Jesus. I love it, uses the phrase there in, in, verse, uh, in verse 1, the, this idea of a living sacrifice. and In other words, it's a sacrifice that still gets up and does life and we have to, we have to die daily, as uh, the phrase Paul would use, we have to die daily to ourselves in order that Christ may be formed and lived uh, through us. So we're a sacrifice that gets up and moves around and we have to continually submit ourselves to his leadership and lordship. And then knowing the tendency of the church to drift towards the world in verse two, he says, don't be conformed. Don't look like the world. There's a lot of names they used uh, for uh, Christians in um, in the early day. Again, Jesus used this term Uh, disciple and he used uh, I think uh, Christianity only appears like twice or three times in the entire New Testament being a Christian everyone else disciple 200 and something times the word disciple is used there but there was another name that people outsiders began to refer to the Christians Um, maybe you've heard followers of the way that's something they called them Uh, I was reading this week and I'd never really seen this before they also called them the third race Christians became the third race you had the Jews, you had the Gentiles, and then some weird mixture of the two. You had Christians who were both sometimes Jews, sometimes Gentiles, sometimes barbarian, sometimes Scathian, as, as Paul referenced those things, sometimes slave, sometimes free. It was this mixture of rich and poor, and educated and uneducated, and didn't matter where you came from, they formed the third race. And so when they would gather together in their homes, there would be no uh, Jewishness or Gentileness as they began to do life. The early church began to be known to the emperors and those in leadership as this third race. It was hard to put a label on them because they began to love each other well. Even represented in the 12 disciples that Jesus picked, you had people that would, in in normal situations, be at enemies with each other. But through the lens of Jesus, they became transformed. They developed this new third thing. Their identity was in Christ, which meant they didn't have to toe any kind of political lines. They just followed the ways of Jesus. As a disciple, we will be people that value, hold to, and declare the good news of the gospel. I know this kind of redundant, that good news of the gospel or good news of Jesus. Gospel literally means good news But the good news of the gospel, as we say, really is translated the good news of the good news. But I think we've got to put that in there because that is the greatest news. It says in Romans 1 verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And again, at the time this was written, Christians were being persecuted. They were the minority for sure. Many were ashamed to even know a Christian. If you were guilty of knowing a Christian or harboring a Christian in your home, it was likely that you would lose everything as well. So there was this cultural temptation to push away from being Christian. Even those who were early in the faith wouldn't want to claim it immediately because of what it would cost them. And Paul says, listen, I I know that that they're against you out there, but here's here's the thing. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The temptation in a time like that is to shrink back. But Paul says, no way. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And we certainly don't want to be the kind of church that shrinks back. Nor do we want to be the kind that whacks people with truth clubs. It's this balance, right, of John chapter 1 of Jesus being full of truth and full of grace. We as a church want to make much of what God makes much of. We're not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and salvation. Maybe we need to be reminded, church, that the gospel works. That it radically changes the lives of people. The gospel really works. Maybe think about your life. Some of us came to Christ as kids and it's hard for us to remember a life before Christ. But talk to people who came to Christ as an adult and they clearly remember being the center of their own universe. And they clearly remember living for themselves in this paradigm shift as they trusted the gospel we refuse to back down from the truth of God's word as a church and as one of your pastors we want to hold high what scripture says and you know if we can be honest the scripture if you you really read it is offensive at times you read some things like you don't want to read anytime you start feeling full of yourself just go read the sermon on the mount it is like the best punch in the face to love and bless your enemies, to care for those who persecute you. I mean, go read it and tell me that that's not just the antithesis of, of even American cultures, the antithesis of what my heart sometimes longs for. We want to hold high the truth of God's word and this temptation to shrink back from the claims of scripture is still alive today and it's happening in pulpits all over the world, even probably in our city. People wanting to reason away the parts that they don't like, the parts that disagree with their lives. And again, people have been doing that a long time. I read this quote this week from Richard Lovelace, and it was just, man, it just really worked on my heart. This is what it says. Pastors gradually settle down and lose interest in being change agents in the church. Here's the phrase that got me. An unconscious conspiracy arises between their flesh, that's the pastor's flesh, and that of their congregation. It becomes... Tacitly understood that the laity, the congregation, will give pastors a special honor in exercising their gifts if the pastors will agree to leave their congregation's pre Christian lifestyles undisturbed and do not call for the mobilization of lay gifts for the work of the kingdom. Man, if that's not an indictment on our culture, where even what I was trained up in is that the, the few pastors or staff, they are like the super Christians and they're the ones that are going to get the work of ministry done. But that, you don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. That the pastor, although he does have a, a calling on his life to do this vocationally, that all of us in the church have our own gifts and God has called us specifically to use those gifts to further the kingdom. But this unconscious conspiracy arises where the congregation doesn't want the pastor preaching against sin and the pastor says, well, if, I, if you just give me a raise, I'll just lay off the hard stuff and we'll just have this, you know, just this kumbaya kind of thing here and our ears will be tickled and we'll leave here and nothing will ever be changed. The Puritans had a practice of uh ex-orders. Have you heard this? This is the Jonathan Edwards era as they would preach and then they would sit down and this wouldn't fly over too well. The exhorter would get up and he would begin to immediately call people's names out in the crowd and apply the scripture that was just preached. He would call them out and says, you know, so-and-so, we preach about forgiveness today. I know you're harboring unforgiveness against your neighbor. You need to get that right. Yeah, that would fly over real well today, right? We're not doing that today. Thank the Lord. To be a disciple means that we have to come under God's word not to excuse it away, and not just to read it as history, and not just to read it as ideals that we should aspire to, but that it would be, it would have authority over our lives. As it says in Timothy, that it's God-breathed and profitable and brings rebuke. As Hebrews says, it is living and active And I think what we have here, and we've mentioned this before, is this Dalmatian theology where we just want to believe Scripture in certain parts, and we want to read the parts of Scripture that make us feel warm and fuzzy, but we don't ever want to deal with this idea of maturation or sanctification, this idea of repentance, that in the Western church has become a terrible word, but in the early church it was a beautiful word. Just quickly, this three ways the gospel transform, uh, f- transforms us. As it's talking here in Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, this new way of thinking, this centering your life around the way of Jesus. Which leads to discerning what God's will is. Three, three ways, and there's more than three. We could probably list 10 or 20, I don't know. Three, I think, predominant ways is first, Humility. The gospel transforms us from proud to humble. In humility, we see how utterly sinful we are and that we are unable to save ourselves through our own efforts. And because of this, we're humble towards God, but also humble towards others. We understand that all humanity stands on equal ground, sinners in need of a Savior. Our salvation is not owing to anything inherent in us. Or anything that we have to accomplish or prove it solely from God. So that no one can boast, Paul says in Galatians. So we cannot have a sense of superiority over anyone but a sense of mission to everyone. The gospel requires humility and it transforms us into more and more humble people. Next is boldness. Boldness. We are confident before God because we have the righteousness of Christ credited to us and are always acceptable to God regardless of our poor performance. You ever have one of those weeks where you just kill it and you just wake up every morning, maybe you fast through the day, you're just, uh, you're walking with God you're casting out demons, maybe. I don't know. You're praying for people to come back to life. Just one of those kind of weeks, right? That, that everything seems to go right. And you feel like you're just walking in the power of God. And then maybe you also have those weeks where you just blow it. And it just seems like one situation after the next, you just didn't come through. And you just see the worst of yourself. The sin just kind of oozes out. And you just feel just numb and... Uh, just numb to the whole thing that your heart's just seared of some way I've had had weeks like both of those and I remember just a few weeks ago feeling this icky feeling I just I just slept in when my alarm went off I wasn't in God's word and you go to God and say God I just I don't feel like I can pray I just I just haven't been walking with you I just have no power but I want you to hear me I just felt very clearly God speaking to my heart, like, Luke, your relationship with me is not based upon your performance. You don't work all week to gain better access to me because you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, that you've been crucified with Christ. When God looks down on us, he sees Christ, and because of that, we have access to the Father, no matter how well we're performing. And that should give us a boldness Through our fellowship with God, even though it might be strained at times, his acceptance of us is never in jeopardy. Because we are accepted by the ultimate person in the universe, we can even risk our reputations on earth for the sake of his name and purposes. Speaking to even as Paul is saying here, listen, don't be conformed. Yes, you're going to stand out. Yes, you're going to be a third race. Yes, people are going to look at you weird. When you take a Sabbath, yes, they're going to look at you weird when you give portions of your income. Yes, they're going to look at you weird when you adhere to this ethical and moral code that God has handed down for our benefit. But it's okay because you're not living for them. The third thing, and these each could be separate sermons. The third thing is this deep affection for God. The gospel transforms us for us in our hearts to have this deep affection for God. This is why these songs that we sing, Lord, I need you. I want to see you lifted high. We understand truly but not fully the depth of his love for us and the sacrifice to save us. Therefore, we live out in this gratitude of grace, not out of fear of punishment. We've become children of God and we don't respond to God out of fear like slaves do, but out of affection like sons and daughters. There's gospel power in that. Disciples, the next identity I want us to see is this idea of community or family. There's this interdependence to the community of faith. And God made it that way that I don't have all the spiritual gifts and neither do you. So in order for us to accomplish this, we're going to have to work together. We're going to have to be folded in together. There's this idea of interdependence. I love this, how God made it. Look down in, uh, in verse three of chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you that you ought to not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Verse four, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, I love this last phrase, and individually members of one another this picture of gospel community. And as gospel community, we should be a people that love deeply and loyally. As a gospel community that we love deeply and loyally. John 13, 34, he says, Love one another as I have loved you. Each one of us has been called to treat each other as Christ has treated us. Let me ask you a question, how much mercy has Christ shown on you? What are the number of times that he's provided forgiveness for you? How much has he blessed you? And then likewise, we should extend that to others, no matter how hard it is. And let me promise you, if you've done this very long, it is hard. To be committed to loving each other deeply and loyally. This is not extra credit for the super spiritual. This is the call on all of us. Paul says, listen, as we are transformed, these are the things that are going to be true about our lives. This interdependence with others, this loving one another. So this was the idea of the prayer of Jesus as we take it all the way back to the very Godhead that operates in perfect community with each other. To be made in the image of God is to be made for this. To walk in the way of Jesus is to walk this way. There's a famous story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe some of you know him who was a pastor and professor at a seminary. He wrote a book called Life Together. Anyone ever even read that book? Maybe the first chapter? The first chapter's strong. It kind of gets a little heavy after that, but... He wrote this book called Life Together based upon his experience um, starting in a legal seminary in Nazi Germany called uh, Finkenwald. And he was open to any one of the confessing church and they would literally do life together. They would gather together early in the morning and they would sit in silence for 30 minutes to prepare their heart for the word of God to be read. And then they would work together and learn together in their studies. And then in the, in the evenings, that they would uh, tend the, the farm on the property together. And then later in the evenings, they would go to theater. and uh, They would attend theater and in the evenings to discuss culture and arts and how they relate to the kingdom of God. And they did life together, of which he wrote this idea of uh, this book, Life Together. In the midst of all this, one of Dietrich's friends that he had grown up with, who was you know part of the uh, church in Germany, came to visit him. And he spent the day with these people and at the end he kind of pulled Dietrich aside and he said, listen, um, I think you've gone a little crazy here, man. This, was, this is a bit much. So Dietrich rode across the river, it's a big hill on the other side. Him and his friend rode across the river and they climbed this hill and on top of it was a, a training camp for um, the Nazi military, his training facility. And as their friends both stared at that, knowing what was coming likely in the and in, 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 in Germany and how that was going to affect the rest of the world, Dietrich pointed back to Finkenwald and said, this has got to be stronger than this. Dietrich knew that the church had to be stronger than any ideology that the world might come with, up with, stronger than what the world might force upon them. This is what it's talking about here in Romans. You know, we consider like a church family as people that we sit next to or close to the same row in a, in a church service. Like this is, this is our community, but yet we don't know each other mostly. We don't do life with each other. We're not investing in each other. Look at verse 9, Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful and zeal, be fervent in the spirit. I love that word, fervent in the spirit. We don't have time to go into that. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Man, that's hard to do. Be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Did you know that that's just one of about 60 times, 59 times exactly in the New Testament where we're giving these one another statements? I want to read these to you, and I'm going to read all of them. I'm going to go quickly. Uh, Don't feel like you have to write them all down. If you want, I can send them to you. I have a PDF document of them. But I want you to be convinced that this isn't an add-on in the Christian life that this idea of really loving each other is not anything new or it's just haphazardly spread throughout. No, this is kind of part of this. This is the people of God. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. 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 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another, Romans 13. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another then as Christ has accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When you come together to eat, wait for each other. Have equal concern for each other. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. A lot of kissing going on in the Corinthians there. Serve one another in love. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you will be destroying each other, Galatians 5. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach one another, Colossians 3. Admonish one another. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Love each other, 1 Thessalonians. Isn't that incredible? We're only halfway there. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily, Hebrews says. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Encourage one another. Don't slander each other. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love he puts the without grumbling because sometimes that's hard. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve each other. Clothe, your, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Love one, love one another. 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 Isn't that incredible? And I don't know where our idea of gospel community came uh, like we share the same row at a church service. No, this is this like intertwined community that is so rich and so deep that all of the power of Rome came against it. You know what's left of Rome today, the Roman Empire? Ruins. You know what's left of the church of Jesus Christ today? Millions upon millions upon millions of believers covering the entire world. Jesus knew that the church needed this Mutual interdependence and love for each other, that we would love each other deeply and loyally. Again, this is just a quick overview. I wish, wouldn't it be incredible just to spend a couple years like just going through those things? And again, if you've tried to do this very long, this is hard. You know why? Because people are sinners and they have junk in their life. They have strong opinions, they have crazy kids, they have weird things. Remember the first time that we started doing this, uh, we started doing this and I've got a lot of stories of this, of uh, just started doing, you know, life together and we would bring meals together and someone brought a pound of bacon and you're like, man, that is amazing. I would eat that whole thing. Someone showed up who was so offended that we ate bacon that they didn't stay I was like, man, you need to hear from God here. Uh, we're in the New Testament. This is the age of grace. Pork's delicious. People get offended over these weird things. And listen, I just teach you just, just uh, preferences need to stay preferences. You, you experienced this, right? When you got married and you learned how selfish you were maybe for the first time. And then you had kids and you learn it every day, like how selfish you are again and again and again. You have to sacrifice the preferences in order to love each other well. That's the same things going on here. I love how like 14 times John says love one another. Like you gotta get this picture, love one another. It's this picture of gospel communities, disciples of Jesus, gospel community. And this third identity is this idea of missionary as missionaries, we will be a church or a people that cares about what God cares about and joins his work in the world. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. His workmanship. We believe and are committed to seeing every believer sent out on mission. With strong conviction, I believe that every one of you who call God Father and Jesus as your Savior, that you've been generally called to be part of his family and uniquely called to a certain mission, a certain race that has been set before you, as the author of Hebrews would say it. It doesn't mean just drinking and cussing less and being kind to your mean neighbor. No, this means that God has created you to bring light into darkness, that you are marked by the great king of kings and you carry around the kingdom and the glory and you represent him everywhere you go. That's why he would tell his disciples, Jesus would, to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is not far off and it's not far off because they carried the kingdom with them. Again, not just in general, God has a unique call on your life. There's no greater joy, I don't think, For me, than to see people understand this call. Like, what has God called you specifically to do? What burdens your heart? What breaks your heart? We've seen this culture of adoption that's kind of uh, rose up in in our church in the past few years. And I think it probably started with, with with the Spears or the Loaches, but we started having Adoption Sunday, and God would speak specifically to people, That this is one of the ministry calls I have on your life. And no, this is not going to be easy. This is going to be so incredibly hard. You're going to have to sacrifice all of your dreams and ideals for this one thing. But this is the call that I'm calling you to do. And with joy, we go and do that thing. And more and more families are popping up and signing up and saying, Yes, yes, I want to go do that. Adopting kids from really hard places. This is such a beauty of the gospel. And other people passionate about other things. We had tutoring in, in schools. We've people serving downtown, people starting their own nonprofits to care for missionaries, or starting their own nonprofits to care for some other part of our society that's been broken and they're investing their lives in thousands of dollars. They're living on mission. And I often hear people as we talk about this. Throw some kind of obstinate to this, like, you know, they're just not gonna do that. That's just that much work. But yet, I see them in their life. Have you ever seen anyone who's like part of a deer lease and they go like weekend after weekend after weekend to plant the stuff and cut the stuff? And I mean, they spend, they spend, Tens of, hundreds of hours just getting it ready, and then every weekend for three months, and I'm not, I'm not ripping on hunting, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that we can easily excuse investing our time and resource and money to do things that bring us pleasure, but as soon as God calls us to do something difficult, we're holding our hand up and saying, God, that's a bit much. Then you don't understand the essence of being a disciple. What did Jesus say? Unless the seed is planted in the ground and it died, then it can't bring forth fruit. You can't be the master of your life in Jesus as well. This call for every disciple to live in the community and to be sent out on mission. John 17, Jesus is having this, this discourse with the Trinity. They're praying. This is, the, this is really the prayer of Jesus. And he says, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Isn't that incredible? Jesus says, just as I've been sent, left the glory of heaven, came down here, took on flesh, incarnated with people, laid my life down for them, washed the stinky feet of the people who were gonna betray me again and again. People would follow and leave. Just as I have been sent, so I send them. Verse 13, the last part of this passage we're gonna cover today says, contribute to the needs of the saints. That doesn't just mean physical needs. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the verse I'm actually supposed to be preaching on today. It's going to get like five minutes. But as I studied this week, I just wanted us to get this full picture of what it looks like to really follow Jesus. Seek to show hospitality. The word hospitality literally means love of stranger. We think of hospitality, we think of like entertaining guests, right? And people coming over. We think hospitality is uh, throwing a baby shower where everything in our house has to be perfect and we invite the people that we love over. We think of hospitality as as Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's not biblical hospitality. That might be something else entirely. But biblical hospitality literally is love of stranger. Meaning that you're inviting people into your home that don't normally belong there. When Job was protesting protesting against his sickness. One of the virtues that he said he never neglected was hospitality. I don't think I have this on the screen, but in Job 31, 32, he says, the sojourner, the stranger, has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the wayfarer. And that's not surprising because the Lord himself said of Job that he was an upright man and he feared God and he turned away from evil, verse one, chapter one. But as far as you wanna go in the history of God's people, one of the God-appointed duties of disciples was hospitality, hospitality. By which I mean the willingness to welcome people into your home or your apartment who don't ordinarily belong there. Hospitality, again, literally means love of stranger. In the New Testament, the duty was re emphasized again and again and again and again. We could look at 15 passages today. The one in our text is verse 13 of chapter 12. Practice hospitality. Maybe your translation says, pursue hospitality. Imperfect verb in the Greek, which implies continuous action. This command in Romans 12:13 is that hospitality would not just be once a year or on occasion, but it would be the constant attitude and practice of God's people that we would say, God, these homes, this apartment, this car of mine, these things that I have, they're not mine. They're yours. I'm not an owner of them. I'm a steward of them. I would live with open hands and open homes. Ready to welcome people who America might say don't belong there. God wants you to reach your world. You might not change the entire world, but you can change your world. Past few weeks, again, we've been talking about this idea of oikos, the Greek word oikos, which means extended household. The book 8 to 15 we have out there for purchase uh, on the counter in the back is this idea of a book by Tom Mercer called 8 to 15, in which he says, listen, all of us have about 8 to 15 people who are open to our influence. When we speak, they listen. That's the world that God has sent us to reach. Now, some people have, might have more uh, people than 15. Some might have fewer than eight. But on average, there's people around us that trust us, that trust our voice. And God has sent you to them as a missionary. I read a story about two groups that headed to Thailand several decades ago, and they each went with a different strategy of how to reach some of these Thai people. Some of these people uh, our church is still trying to reach in the surrounding countries. And these people are incredibly hard to reach these people in the Eastern culture, especially the Thai people. So these two groups of missionaries went over there. They both had a different strategy. One strategy was they were going to open a coffee shop and they were going to use something like, uh, four spiritual laws or some kind of track. And they would sell someone a, uh, you know, an Americano and then say, and, um, you know, I want to tell you about eternal life. Um, very spiritual drink. And, uh, this other group that went over, they didn't have this conversion method. They had this blessed bless method where they went over there and they tried to just bless people. They just tried to invest in their life. And I'm not saying that they didn't speak the gospel. You can't not speak the gospel. That's what uh, scripture says. How can they believe if they've not heard? You have to articulate what the gospel is. But there's a way to do it. You can do that with strangers like the first group did, or this other group just wanted to do life and invest in these people. So they helped them move. They tutored them. uh, They blessed them in crazy ways. And then a decade passed, and they brought these groups back together, and they wanted to track how effective their disciple-making process was. And the first group that went over simply just to convert, uh, they had so many uh, disciples made over the decade. But this other group had 50 times the number of disciples. Because they weren't just trying to convince someone of something. They really cared for them and invested their life. And I'm not saying that God wouldn't lead you to do one or the other. I remember as a little kid knocking on doors with my dad. That's is kind of what we did and moved into a city and uh, had a house there. I remember in, in, in New Orleans and I was growing up and we would just on Saturdays, we would just go knocking on people's doors and uh, my dad would just share the gospel with them. And on more than one occasion, I remember my dad knocking on this door, a lady coming, dad said he was you know, just there to, to share the gospel with them and just uh, breaking down with tears. I remember I think and my dad offended this lady and she had said no, that God told me someone was coming today. And you showed up. I'm not saying God can't work that way. Absolutely, He can. But I'm, what I'm saying is there's something that's so contagious about the people of God who don't just look for a mark, they just don't look for someone that they can go and convince that the gospel is real, but that we invest our lives in the people for the long run. Sometimes that'll mean sharing the gospel. Sometimes it'll also mean opening your home, emptying your wallet, taking a friend to coffee, spending the weekend with a neighbor that you don't necessarily love in order to love them well. There are a thousand ways to bless and invest in people around you. Every one of you, when you came in, were handed this Oikos card and there's some little headings on there. Jason's gonna talk about that a little later, but my prayer is that today, maybe in this service or tonight, that you would begin to jot some people's names on there, that you're praying that God would open up doors for you to love them well and to declare the gospel, demonstrating and declaring the gospel too. That he would open doors. Several times we see Paul praying for this, that we went there and we went to the city and there were open doors. And we began to proclaim the gospel and God did this incredible thing. This is what uh, Jesus said to his disciples. I want you to go and find, find the open door, people that will open their home to you, these people of peace. And if they open themselves to you, I want you to stay with them and minister to them, proclaim the kingdom of God. And that's what we're praying for as we write our names on this, that we're praying that God would change the eternal destiny of these people because of our investment in them and we would look for ways that we could invest. Because we are changed by Jesus, we seek to grow into the likeness of Jesus, discipleship. Because we've been adopted into his family, we've become this third race. We're living in biblical community. And finally, we have a calling on our life that we've been sent into mission. And we don't do all these things for God. No, we do them from, from not for, because we've been changed, because we're adopted, because we're accepted. We're loving on these other people. I'm going to give you some time to pray about some of this where you're at. We're going to take communion in a minute. Uh, You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion, but you do have to be part of God's church. That you believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and you're desiring to walk with him in obedience. And if you've never been here before, we just take the bread out of the, cu- out of the basket and we dip it into the cup and then partake it. But before we do that, I want our hearts to be right for this. I want to give you some time and some space and maybe you're jotting names down on a card. Maybe you're asking God to reveal the parts of your heart that aren't right with him maybe there's some sin that you've hidden maybe you've been adopted into his family but you're still acting like an orphan that you don't have a place to belong and I pray that you would push back the lies of the enemy today and understand who you are in him God we love you Lord, I thank you for this group of people that's gathered here today Lord I thank you for the truth of your word Lord, I pray that it does what it needs to do, that it would bring conviction where sin is present, that it would bring encouragement to those that are weary, that even in it would bring uh, healing to the sickness even of our body or soul. Lord, we believe in all faith that you want to do this incredible thing with your church. Lord, I pray that I would not get in the way of that. Lord, that we, we, we view you as our senior pastor. And I pray that you would lead us and guide us and shepherd us in the way that you have us to go. That we would see some incredible things this year of people crossing the line of faith and people understanding their missional call. Of us literally becoming a third race. Jesus, work in us in power. Thank you for this reminder of communion that we are yours, proclaiming your death again and again as we partake of it. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. I'll be standing in the back if anyone wants to pray. Take your time when you're ready. Communion servers are here.